Hello and welcome to this very special podcast recorded at the Fitzroy Writers Festival and featuring a fascinating conversation between award-winning writers Clementine Ford and Alice Robinson. Before we begin, a few notes. This is a live recording and there is a short stretch at the beginning where the microphone doesn't sound great, but bear with us, it gets better quickly. Also, a strong language warning on this one, there are quite a few swear words, and the talk covers divorce, online abuse, bullying, eating disorders and other topics that listeners may find upsetting. And now over to the Mayor of the City of Yarra, Gabrielle de Vietri, for the Acknowledgement of Country. Good evening. On behalf of Yarra City Council, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and the true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We acknowledge their creator spirit, Bunjil, and we acknowledge their ancestors and their elders. We also acknowledge their strength and resilience of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people who have never ceded sovereignty and who retain their strong connections to family, clan and country, despite the impacts of European invasion. We also acknowledge the significant contributions of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra. And we pay respects to all elders here this evening and their elders past, present and future. Good evening, everyone. My name is Gabrielle de Vietri. I'm the Mayor of Yarra. Welcome to the second ever Fitzroy Writers Festival. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making this event possible. And thank you to Yarra Libraries. We are very proud of our five libraries here in Yarra, which provide free access to collections, programs, and events to residents and visitors in Yarra. I'm so thrilled to read through the, the program for this year's Writers' Festival and to see that it revolves around themes of migration, climate change, and gender equality. Issues that still in 2021 need our dedicated work, attention, and outrage. And I know fewer people who do articulate art outrage with such clarity than Clementine Ford. Her voice is a source of strength for all of us still operating under patriarchal oppressions, and it is one of clarity and courage in a world still shaped by men's violence against women, rape culture, and gender inequality. I'm also really excited to hear from Alice Robinsons, whose recent work of fiction focuses on the struggles uh, faced especially by women in difficult times. Two incredible writers, and I can't wait to hear what is bound to be a very compelling discussion. Clementine and Alice, thank you. One of the things that isn't revealed in the official bios is that we're also good friends and um, as those Best friends. <laughs> as those introductions were happening, I was thinking about one time when we went to the Nova and, uh, and we're having, I think maybe we're seeing Little Women and I suddenly realised that in the duo, I'm not Anne of Green Gables, I'm Diana Barry. <laughs> if you know those books, you'll know how horrifying that is when you really want to be Anne, but of course Clem gets to be that person. Aww. Alice was horrified that I've never read Little Women. <laughs> yeah, but we can overlook these things, uh, <laughs> potentially. Um, just before we begin though, I just wanted to say thank you so much everyone for coming out tonight. Um, also, isn't it wonderful that we can sit in a room together and have an event and there's no social distancing needed? I just feel like, can we just have a collective moment, Victorians, to appreciate what it is we fucking did? <laughs> we saved the country, guys. Um, and also I wanted to say that uh, I would also like to acknowledge that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to elders past and present, but also this week marks the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. And as we know, not much has changed. Um, one of the things that I think that we can do is there's a really great new organisation called the Jajawa Foundation and it has been started by the family members of loved ones who have died as a result of custodial violence. And you can follow that organisation on Instagram and on Facebook, and you can also donate to it because money is what helps organisations. So if you're looking for a way to pay the rent, then that is a really good place to start. And if you are unsure of the spelling, please feel free to approach me afterwards and I can help you out with that. 
Well said, thank you. Um, we could, we'll talk about all kinds of things tonight, I'm sure, but I think because we're at a writers' festival, it's judicious of us to start at the books. And so uh, many of you will know that Clem's got a new book coming out this year. Somehow, miraculously, she seems to pump them out really quickly, which I'm very jealous of. And I want to ask you, Clem, because um, I don't know how public you've been really about the nature. I know you've been doing little screenshots of the new book, but the first two books are really feminist manifestos. Um, you've, you've probably all read them. They're wonderful. And the new book, I think, is maybe something a little bit different. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about whether you see it as a shift or whether you see it as a continuation of the work. It's very scary because it is such a personal book so it's if you're not familiar with it and why would you be it's a it's a book of personal essays about love so it's called how we love and the conceit of it is not a book about the state of love and not in that you know oftentimes women say I'm writing a book about love and people just make the automatic assumption that they're writing a book about all the people that they've ever dated and there are certainly essays in there about people that I've dated but it's a book about, you know, there's an essay about my mother who died 14 years ago and, you know, what it was like to, you know, there's memories of my childhood with her and then what it's like to nurse someone to death and to, to grieve for all of the things that you won't have with them. And then, of course, there's essays about, there's an essay about me becoming a mother myself. And it is a departure, I think, from what people associate me with. But I've always done that life writing, and I feel very at home in that space. But it's really, really scary because you establish yourself as this kind of writer, and, and certainly there are lots of people in this country that have been intent on pigeonholing me as one thing um, and not seeing what I think is actually the complexities of my work. So I worry, I guess, will it invite a new audience into an existing audience, or will it turn the audience off that's expecting just to have feminist polemic and feminist rage. I think that the, the issue really is that this will be familiar to many women in the room and, and also anyone actually in the room who has a marginalised background that has like had to advocate for themselves, is that it doesn't matter what means you use or what method of communication. It doesn't matter if you're angry. It doesn't matter if you're funny. It doesn't matter if you're sincere and it doesn't matter if you're gentle. You can try any different approach the problem is not your approach. The problem is the society that you're operating in doesn't want to hear it. It wants to maintain the status quo. And so when you are unapologetically angry, they'll paint you as uh, too rageful. You turn people off with your anger. You know, the number of people that I've had say to me, you would win more people over if you were just nicer about it. And then you're like, well, okay, I'll try and be really nice about it. And they ignore that. Or you try and be really funny and or use satire to, things to me that are clearly um, hyperbolic in nature, and they'll say they'll they'll you know treat it like it's deadly serious. It's it comes back to that age old question of <laughs> comes back to that age old question of well you know do you think feminism just needs a rebrand like do you think that we should just stop calling it feminism and I always just think do you think the problem is the word. Or do you think the problem is that it's advocating for a complete dismantling of the society that we live in and men's power and privilege within it? Because probably it's the latter. <laughs> Likely. Uh, do you think um, part of the problem, like somebody was talking to me about this kind of the shift from the feminism that we might have encountered in our 20s uh, where, where none of us, maybe you're an exception, I think you're always an exception to these rules about how women are, but in my friendship group and in the, you know, the university and all of these, it was really a kind of, uh, you didn't want to be associated with the, the title. And the reason was, and it's uh, ongoing today, you didn't want to be unappealing to men. Yeah, I mean, I, I write about that in Fight Like a Girl and it's something that I remember Emily Maguire writing in her book, Princesses and Porn Stars, which came out, I think, in around 2006 or 2007, um, which at the time, like, there was, you know, the 2000s were like a dearth of 
feminist content. You know, mm. I remember just so many varying articles on the covers of newspapers. And newspapers, at the time, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the, for better or worse, the democratisation of the internet and who gets to speak in that, yes, definitely there is still gatekeeping that happens, but there are opportunities now for people to carve out mm. a space where, you know, different voices can be heard. They may not be paid for it, which is another problem entirely, but they can at least assert themselves. Whereas back then before before that democratisation had happened, we were still being told what the state of affairs was by traditional forms of media. So there were you know, just endless parades of newspaper articles that had varying headlines like, is feminism dead? Or why young women aren't interested in feminism now? And it rang true to me to an extent in that I remember a lot of those people at uni and I had been one of them up until my first year at university. And, you know, like I said, I write, I write about that in Fight Like a Girl, that I had a sense of social justice throughout high school, but I'd never wanted to associate myself with those angry man-hating hairy-legged lesbians um, because those things were always framed as being bad. Now, obviously, I understand and have understood for a long time, as, as I'm sure we all have, that those things are just used as a way to shame women for rejecting patriarchal you know, the patriarchal conditions, if you conform to this, we will give you a certain degree of freedom. Um, so I I just assumed that there were no other, aside from me and my friends, I just assumed that there were no other young women out there who were thinking the same way that I was. And it was quite freeing in a way, really, because, you know, and at this point I'll say, Alice and I, we are like incredibly close, intimate friends. And so at some point the conversation will veer into that intimate territory. We've talked a lot about our various experiences of how we've been perceived in society. One of the things that I've been realising or kind of been been able to harness, I guess, more as I, you know, that now that I'm getting older, um, I feel like I'm coming into my power in a way that is seems to be familiar to a lot of women of a certain age. Um, and one of the things that I think that has really helped that is that I never had that experience in my 20s of being perceived as desirable. Whether or not I was or not, mm. I never perceived myself that way. I, I certainly never had that feedback from men around me. So I kind of, as upsetting as that was to me at the time, because patriarchy teaches us that our value is inherently linked to the way that men view us, even if we don't like those men, we still see ourselves through the eyes of them, that I, I, I emerged into adulthood never feeling like I was, I was the same as other women. And to an extent, like I wasn't really entitled to call myself a woman. And I have to be really careful in articulating that because it's not about gender dysphoria and I would never want to claim that same experience that trans people have, which is obviously completely different. But it was more a sense of if I don't fit into the standards that, I have been conditioned to believe unnecessary of me as a woman appealing to the male gaze. What am I and what is my purpose in this world? So, Can being, I say something about of that? Of course. So one of the things that I've had to reckon with, and I want to talk about ageing at some point if we get a chance to, because we're both turning 40 this year and I feel like that's a real you know, a milestone, is that uh, I've realised that the power that I've held in the world um, as someone who's probably passed or been or deemed themselves acceptable enough in their 20s and 30s to feel like uh, my appearance was not hindering my progress through the world, but to, to some extent I felt that I was invisible, which is a privilege actually, I think. Um, but but, but you, were, you were protected by, and I'm quote unquote protected by the fact that you were married and so you were able to operate in that patriarchal space that's true in a way that afforded you a level of protection from the judgment of it that's true but one of the things that I find now as someone um with I know, hate marriage by the way just to make that clear <laughs> we'll get onto that in a minute uh, someone with a PhD who's written books um who has some standing in the world I feel like the power that I hold as a woman in our culture uh is the power to disarm people because their expectation of me when they meet me is very low. And at some point the truth comes out if they talk to me for long enough. 
and then they're on the back foot and then I have power. Mm-hmm. And that's such a depressing power to have. I mean, glad I've got it. It's better than not having it. And, it, and it, I love that look on their face when they think, ah, you're not a, a dodo. Um, I'm talking to someone because not all women get that moment, mm-hmm. and I do. But, but I feel really depressed when it happens mm-hmm. too because I think wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to walk into a room and, and own it from the moment you step foot in that room? It's so interesting the different perceptions that we have of ourselves as, you know, people operating in the world and operating in patriarchy and under the male gaze. And I, and I, I appreciate that perspective and I can see that that being true for you and the ways in which, you know, it's like the, the ever-shifting goalposts of mm. where we're meant to fit in. You're supposed to be the, the society rather dictates the capitalist patriarchal society dictates that we conform to standards of beauty that we make ourselves appealing to the male gaze that we make ourselves small and slight and docile and um tinkly tinkly i always again i say in the book that you know growing up um you know kylie said before that i'm taller than she expected and it's funny the number of people who say that about me you're taller than i expected and i always feel like i have a very tall personality (laughs) Um, or maybe it's just that I've always been tall and I've always had a sense of myself, again, however true it may be or not, I've always had a sense of myself that the space I occupy in the world, no matter what I think about it, is big. And mm. and I grew up, and my adolescence especially, and then in my 20s, was just um, absorbed by this constant desire to be small and to mm. be slight and to be like just just the right size to like pick up and put in your pocket, you know, or that, you know, as as I write in the book that I wanted to be able to, I wanted the experience of being swept up by a boy at school and lifted into the air so that I could squeal in mock indignation (laughs) to be put down, which seemed to me at the time to be like the pinnacle of achievement, you know, that you could, all, all you needed to do was just conform genetically to this perfection, you know, that you just needed to be small enough for them for to, to not be a bother to anyone. And then as I got older, and I've been really grateful for that, um, I suppose, like, I, I went out the other night, I went to a pub and I wore these much higher heels than this. They were probably about that high. And I think they took me up to about six foot two maybe. I was taller than most of the men in the pub and I was like, this is power. <laughs> I felt invincible and that's what I was trying to say before was that because I haven't had that sensation of being a woman in the world who's um, – I've certainly absorbed the idea that my value was related to the way that I looked and the way that men desired me. I absorbed it when I was younger. But because I never then established that value on that basis because it just never happened, I had to kind of like figure out who I was – outside of it and so unlike some women's experience of the world where that that illusion of power is theirs throughout their youth because that's that's the kind of trade-off that patriarchy gives them that if you give us this then for a short time we'll give you an illusion of power Mm. and then you know they turn 40 or 50 and they say well I've just become invisible now and there's a part of me that feels like you know I'm not going to feel too sorry for people who that's their biggest burden to bear but I also think that it must be like terribly unsettling to have spent 40 or 50 years feeling like people listen to you because you're interesting and then finding out that it doesn't matter how interesting or smart you are, like you were saying, that actually they might just listen to you because they want to fuck you. Mm. And if you don't have that and you can early on in your development as a woman and in, in your emergence into adulthood – Deal with the fact first, well, that's not going to happen. They don't want to fuck me, so I have to, like, reckon with my upset about that. And then when you're in your 30s, go, isn't it great that they don't want to do that? And you can actually be fully who you are. Do you know what that I noticed uh, among my women friends, and you would notice this too, even in that discourse that you just recounted, there's no mention of whether we want to fuck them. Exactly. exactly. And That's you know, so sad. I don't know if anyone here follows my maths updates on Instagram. <laughs> maths is married at first sight for anyone who is not a reality TV trash bag like me. But one of the things that, you know, 
and it's it's all produced television, I know that. It's not scripted, but it is produced. And they deliberately choose people to represent a narrative. But one of the things that's so frustrating is that they, you know, these women march down the aisle on this first day when they're like getting married to a complete stranger. And almost without exception, they all say, I hope he likes me. Yeah. And no one ever says, I hope he's not a fuckwit. <laughs> Or, or even I hope I'm attracted to him, you know. It's just always about unlearning that um, mm. or letting go of that need to have men like you is for many of us a lifelong process. And I think I've had the huge privilege in that, you know, people always focus on um, the trolling that I get. Oh, how do you cope with it? How do you cope with it? That's easy. Like it's actually so easy to deal with people saying horrible things about you because at some point it just becomes noise. And when you're a woman, the first few times you hear it, of course, we're like, well, that's the worst thing that can be said about me, that I'm ugly, that I'm unfuckable, that I'm grotesque mm -hmm. because those are all the things that I've been taught I absolutely should not be if I want to have any respect or value in this world. Once you get used to hearing that, you're like, oh, it's just noise. It's just like hearing the sea rage outside. And then you can actually start saying what it is you want to say. Is there a way to get to that point, though, without having to cop years of abuse? <laughs> um, what I hope part of the work that I do now is and it's interesting you know we'll probably get onto this but the disparaging tones that uh, you know people there are some people who would talk about how I work now, particularly since COVID I, I changed my approach to work I really started to build up my social media work on Instagram, which I think is a really fascinating platform, um, primarily because in my experience, it's mostly women who use it as opposed to Facebook, which is where mm. I got most of my trolling. On Instagram, I can connect directly with women who, for many of them, have a sense of feminism, but maybe had not like really explored it in their lives. So you can you can have discussions that are really meaningful and, and powerful for women without them being without feeling like they're being sat in on by men who need to be catered to mm. um which we you know happens in an online space but also every person in this room who has an experience of appealing to a dominant narrative would understand what it feels like to sit there and have their safe connection of people who have familiar experiences to them suddenly be changed or upended by having the presence of one person from a community that has historically oppressed them that they you know it's like I always say use that example of um if you're sitting at a, a bar with your girlfriends and you're all chatting away and a guy comes up I mean I would I doubt any woman in here has not had this experience a guy come, comes up and goes girls mind if I join you and he says it as he's sitting down. Yeah. And what ends up happening or what has ended up happening in my experience is that all of the women there, and he never says women, he always says, you girls mind if I join you. <laughs> and all of the women stop what they're saying and just automatically turn their legs towards the man and make a very inclusive space. And it's not necessarily because they're like, at last a man has come to witness us living. But the, the, just the conditioning is, oh, okay, well, the guy's here, so, mm. you know, We've, there's a sense of like maintaining safety by being nice and sweet and polite. Let's stop talking about what it was we were talking about because he might not like it. He might be bored by it. Let's ask him about himself. What are you doing here? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the, the things that's most fun is to say as he's like propping himself down, yep, we're busy. Sorry. We're having a private conversation actually. Fuck off. And he always looks like so shocked and stunned. Can I tell you something funny about that? I had that experience with a group of girlfriends at a bar and, and two men came over and sat down at our table, same scenario, and they said, how do you girls know each other? And we said, we're all in the same mother's group. <laughs> Those guys are out of there so fast. <laughs> yeah. So it's, unsexy yeah, mums, so yuck. gross, yucky, yucky. Yeah. Um, I can't remember how I got onto that. Oh, inst it, work, yeah, how, how work changes. Yeah, so the, dis the kind of like tones that if you – the things that traditionally – we know the things that traditionally are associated with women liking them are perceived by the culture to be rubbish. Um, not very – I mean, I, I had this – I was doing this interview yesterday with someone about Australian books and we were talking about the difference between Leanne Moriarty and um, – Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies – 
and Christos Chakas's The Slap. Both of those books are about communities of people where there are children involved, there's school involved, there's interpersonal dynamics. Mm. I like both of those books. I really, I haven't met Leanne. I've met Christos. I really like him. It's no shade on him. But Christos Chokas wins a lot of literary awards and won a lot of literary acclaim for The Slap. And Leanne Moriarty is dismissed as being beach read. Mm. But Leanne Moriarty's book also dealt with domestic violence in a really important way in that she exposed this is not just something that we can pretend happens to a particular class of people. This is something that doesn't discriminate. And it was a really well-crafted book in that it was a good yarn. It invites it's accessible in that it invites anyone to become a reader. And it's just really interesting the way that you see how we absorb those messages about w the worth and value of women's contributions mm. versus men's. You know, it's like that fucking Swedish writer who wrote the book about domestic. I can't even Nascad. remember his name. I always insist on forgetting what his name is. <laughs> I just don't want to yeah. know it. Yeah. Let's hope nobody's borrowing his books from the library. <laughs> I always think one thing about talking about books and, and men and women, like there's this kind of perception or I had a perception growing up that boys were confused by girls or men confused by women or like what what are they thinking? And it's like, dude. It's it, a like, mystery. Yeah, there are like women also write novels, surprise, and uh, you, like we've told you everything there is to know about everything we've ever thought and you just have to go to the library and, and read it. It's all right there on the page. Well, that's a really good opportunity to segue into talking about The Glad Shout because uh, if, if anyone here has not read Alice's book, The Glad Shout, it is brilliant. And I remember when you asked me, so when you launched the book, you because we, we met in a mum's group online and Alice messaged me and she said, will you, you know, hello, um, blah, 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 will you launch my book? And I was kind of a bit wary because um, the unfortunate side effect of you know, being oh, famous. I feel like a wanker <laughs> saying this, but the unfortunate side effect of, of having a more public profile is that you worry that people want to be associated with you or be friends with you because it might like get them something, you know? And so you do sort of, I'm, I've probably become a lot more protective of myself. I, I have very few close friends, um, lots of acquaintances, but very few people who I would say I'm going to go out and have like a close intimate dinner with them. Um, and so when, I, when Alice messaged me, I just thought, I don't really know this person. Is it, I didn't really, I couldn't read it. I couldn't pick the read on it. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Send me the book. She sent it to me and I read it and I was like, I fucking hate this woman. She's such a good writer. <laughs> um, and wrote back to you and I was like, I would, I would, die for the privilege of helping you to launch this book. It's so good. And one of the things that's great about it is that, can I give a little blurb on it? Yeah, go for it. It's, you know, you heard Kylie say before what it, uh, what it was about. Oh, sorry, Gabrielle, you gave a little blurb on it. Um, it tells the story of, you know, we're so used in society to hearing about disaster tales and here is the man that rescues everyone around them, you know, and even in action movies, I love Dwayne The Rock Johnson, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but here is Dwayne The Rock Johnson saving LA. And what your book did was say there's a disaster that's happened and there are children obviously involved in any disaster and this is what it looks like in the daily grind after that of being a mum with a toddler who is charged with having to take care of this child in, you know, sweltering humidity, in a fearsome kind of... Um, environment where the men are all kind of big noting themselves well, we're going to go off and we're going to look and see whether or not there's like anything happening outside over the walls we're going to go and put up tents for everybody and <laughs> I thought that that was such an interesting story to tell because it's not one that we ever really hear it because it's it's like Rachel Cusk wrote in The Guardian a few years ago she was talking about um the different kinds of stories that are given the that are afforded the privilege of being seen as universal and obviously we know that white people's stories are seen as being universal because we live in a white supremacy but also men's stories are seen as being universal because we live in a patriarchy and so she said men you know stories about men going off to war hmm. are seen as being like representative of the deep the depth of the human condition and they're so important these stories of men at war I mean how many fucking books and movies can be made about men going to war like surely We've said all that can be said about it, right? 
But she said a, a, a but Clementine, book. how will they show affection for one another unless they're mm. in a trench and they're about to be killed? Unless, unless they can die for one another, yeah. how can they possibly they can express love? that tear that yeah. they've been holding in. But she said, you know, books about shop girls written mm. by women who deal with all manner of different people coming through the shop day in and day out and, and their observations of that, that's never seen as being reflective of the human experience. Do you know what I think's heroic? Uh, getting up at 5am because your kid's awake and um, waving goodbye to your partner and they go off for eight hours and sit in a clean office and in the meantime, you know, the drama of daily life ensues and then they come back at six and they're tired. See, you could write that book from the perspective of the mother but it would only win an award if you wrote it under the pseudonym of a man. <laughs> Maybe. I want to ask you about the marriage stuff, if if that's okay. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about how marriage is done. <laughs> well, the thing that I always feel is your friend is a kind of a sense, uh, to be quite frank with everyone listening, is a, is a real sense of anxiety when you get on that platform because I just feel like uh, this is a big commitment to make to... A bit like marriage. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, to kind of the outcome of someone's life. And I, and I wonder if you feel anxious about that, about how it's going to turn out beyond the divorce for that woman that well, you've yeah. coached or supported or in, uh, yeah. We've had this discussion before. Again, for anyone not familiar, I have a little bit of a platform called Leave Your Husband. I would like <laughs> to stress, not that I ever engage in not all men rhetoric, but I would like to stress that I'm not saying to every single person, you must leave your husband, otherwise you're a bad feminist, or leave your husband, otherwise I will come to your house and kill you both. Like, it's not <laughs> that one soundbite alone the Daily Mail could get a hold of and they'd be like, hardline feminist Clementine Ford shockingly encourages women to kill their husbands. Um, it's If it's not for you, it's not for you. But what I do know is that there are – and I know this from my own personal experience of living and and what I want from for my life in the world and also from having hundreds if not thousands, probably thousands to be honest at this point, of women contact me and tell me their personal stories, that there are so many women walking around who feel completely duped by what it is they were taught to aspire to that they, you know, we, we condition little girls and young women to think that the most important thing they can do, and, and yes, I'm talking, I'm talking in very heteronormative terms here, but the society is not like everyone should just get married, whether or not it's to a guy or a girl, it's, it is like heteronormative. They want little girls to grow up and marry men so that those little girls can take, can become women who take care of men so that those men can go off and take care of looking after the world. And that is patriarchy. And girls are told that the most important thing that they can have for their happiness is marriage, even though every happiness index indicates that that is not true, that women are happier when they are single, um, and that any unhappiness that they may feel as a single person is not actually about living by themselves in their own terms, but about failing to live up to the standards that society has inflicted on them. And men, meanwhile, are framed as being, ooh, swinging bachelors that just have to, ooh, avoid. She's trying to get you under the thumb there. You've got to get out of that. You know, she's trying to pussy whip you. And marriage will destroy a man's happiness. Oh, she's trapped you. Oh, God, what will you do? Whereas we know also from happiness indexes that marriage increases men's happiness because all of a sudden they've got a mummy taking care of them again. And I think that, if you, you know, when I say the leave your husband thing, it's for women who, and actually it's for anyone in a partnership that's unhappy, but I'm talking to women partnered with men because that is the way that the world continues to function. That is the power that patriarchy relies on is men, is, is women performing the service for men. If you feel that message is for you, then it's for you. If you've been sitting there and thinking, I'm not happy, but I don't feel like I've, you know, the number of women who, it seems to me need to have, and I'm not judging them for that because I know that this is the way that society makes them feel, need to have permission to be able to leave situations that are draining their soul is shocking and, again, a function of patriarchy. I was unique, I think, or I am unique or a part of a small cohort, cohort of people in that 
for all of the things that my parents might have taught me about my value in the world, there was a lot of body image stuff that was very bad. I was never raised with any of the messaging around, well, when you grow up and get married, when you grow up and have a family of your own, when you grow up and find a man to love you. Um, I was told that men don't love fat girls. So that, you know, contributed to a lifelong eating disorder. Thanks, dad. Um, uh, I probably should have given a little content warning on that. Sorry. Obviously that's not true. We know that that's not true. Um, but what I was never raised with was you like the best thing that you can do, your achievement will be marked by you getting married and having children. Instead, my parents were like, never rely on a man, always be able to make your own money. You can't trust men, trust men to take care of you and you always need to be able to leave a situation if you can. That's very, I know that now that is very simplistic messaging because obviously that is not possible for a lot of people and circumstances, like it's not as easy as that for a lot of people. But I did mean that I grew up for 20 years with messaging that was like, it doesn't matter if I get married or not. Like that's not the goal of my life. And so I was able to kind of like enter, even though I, I still had all of these other um, influences and all of these other negative kind of uh, suggestions from patriarchy, I never felt like my life will be bereft if I don't find a man to pick me. Can I complicate that a little bit, though? Because I feel, and maybe there are other women in the room who relate to this, that I uh, had an upbringing. My mother was a feminist academic, and um, I, I felt that I re received that message loud and clear, but I just thought because of that that, that somehow the things wouldn't apply to me, yeah. that the, the structures wouldn't apply because I could uh, theorise them and surprise, they did. Uh, and I don't know what you do. So, so knowing about it isn't enough to be protected. I guess, you know, like the slippery slope in the kind of the thinking then is like, well, we just need to dismantle this thing and get out from under it. Yeah. I don't know. But something about uh, it sort of feels unforgivable to me and myself that you can walk into the trap being able to see the trap and think it's not going to close on me. But everyone thinks that, you know, you have a child with someone and you think, it's not going to happen to me though. Yeah. That yeah, I've heard all these horror stories from fellow mums, but that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. And then it does. Because of course, why would you walk into the trap if you knew that it was a trap? If, or if you thought that the trap would apply to you? Mm -hmm. And again, that's why, that's why the culture is so invested in framing marriage and cohabitation to women as being something essential to our happiness and essential to our very identities. Men don't have that culturally, don't have that, whether or not they experience it personally or not, they don't culturally have that experience of being told that you will be nothing, your life will amount to nothing if you don't get married or have some long-term partnership and if you don't have a child. If you don't bring another human into the world, you will never be a half human. You can be a full human on your own without any of that. So one of the things that, you know, I, so when I separated from my son's dad, it was really, and we, we have a wonderful relationship now. And so one of the other things I say, and I know that that's not true for a lot of people, but one of the things that I also try and emphasize is that walking away from a relationship that's walking away from the romantic part of a relationship doesn't mean that you have to walk away from the family aspect mm. of it, that ideally I was very lucky that I ended up having a child with someone who has always 100% been committed to that child and who we had shared values about how we wanted to raise that child. It is kind of shocking to me that, um, and I say this without judgment, because it's just people just, I think, enter into things without really thinking because that's just what you see other people doing. But it is kind of shocking to me that there is a, there are a lot of people who have children with someone who then are quite stunned that they have completely different philosophies on how to raise those children mm -hmm. once they have arrived. Or, you know, after I wrote Boys Will Be Boys, mum's writing to me and saying, how do I stop my husband from, like, shaming my son for liking pink? You know, and I think, well, okay, let's talk about that now. But, like, maybe that's – I don't want to say, like, you should have had that conversation early on, but 
if you haven't had a child yet and you would like to, these are conversations that's really important to have with the person who you may be planning on having a child with, whether or not it's someone who is a donor, whether or not it's a, it's a lover, whether or not it's, you know, it's a man or a woman, whoever it is, like these are important things to have because it's not actually, that is how the trap gets you. Because you think, oh, well, it'll all just fall into place afterwards. We'll figure it out as we go along. But one thing that a lot of women, I think, are not prepared for, and certainly maybe in heterosexual or in in male uh, man-woman partnerships, there's no preparation for, is that if you have subscribed to the idea as a woman that the most important thing is is the love of a man, and I found this man to love me, and I love him, whether or not I really truly love him or just think that I love him, I love him. We're going to have like this beautiful, wonderful, like he's my soulmate. We're going to be, I can't believe I found my best friend. We're going to live together for the rest of our lives. Um, I mean, life is very long. Come on. <laughs> but what, what a lot of women I don't think prepare themselves for and how can you is that if you have a child in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, the love that you feel for that man it, certainly in the immediate period afterwards, you will be familiar with this, is non, it's not non-existent. It's just it doesn't even factor. You have a small creature to take care of, your child. You can't be worrying yourself about whether or not this man's got like a, a nice full tummy to go off to work you with. Can't you can't even know? go to the toilet. No. So I think that there's this expectation that people have that like you, a child comes, you know, love, marriage and a baby carriage, and then two becomes three, and wow, we're all like here in our little love bubble, and they're not prepared for the fury that comes from being chronically let down by someone who doesn't understand that they are suddenly the least important person in the house, purely because of like survival. And and then there comes the shame, and I think this will also be familiar to a lot of women. It's certainly my story. The shame of not wanting people outside of your mm. environment to see that. You may not be living in an abusive situation. We're, we're sort of like taught that the only, the only kind of shame that you should feel is about whether or not you're shielding abuse. But there's a lot of shame that happens because women are existing in domestic partnerships where they're like, I'm not being respected. I'm having to do all of the work and I feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed that I'm a smart person who's got a PhD and who's got like, you know, a career and I'm going home at the, I felt embarrassed that I was out there preaching feminism every day and I was going home and paying all the bills and mm. like doing all of the work and unable to kind of make any traction on this, on this relationship that seemed to not be acknowledging the fact that I'd not just been through a traumatic birth, but that I was now like having to do everything to take care of this child. I feel like Rachel Cusk says an interesting thing in her book, Aftermath, about her divorce, where she says when she divorced her husband, she said she advocated that the children belong to me. And he thought that was a grotesque thing for a feminist to say. But I do... Like, I th I'm just saying this because I think I probably also felt that when the babies were born and that's a crazy sort of a, a difficult thing to think when you're also asking for that person to do 50% of the work. There's something complicated there in the dynamic because you both want the ownership of the child and you don't want to do it all. Um, maybe I'm advocating for men a little bit by saying that. Um, no, I think it's a complicated thing. You know, I think that there are – it's not my experience. I never had that feeling when I had my son that I was the only one who could take care of him. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have that. In fact, I'd had such terrible prenatal anxiety that all I wanted was for him to be out of my body. And then when he was out of my body, for a while I was like, I don't want you to touch me because I've, I have to be separate from you. Mm -hmm. And – I sort of took a very practical or was able to take a very pragmatic approach after he was born in that I, for whatever reason, this is not, it's not a skill I developed. It's not anything special. It just happened to be the way that I viewed it. Um, in the same way that some women unexpectedly to them are like, I, no one can change my baby's nappy but me, you know, and they're like, this is, I don't know why I think this, but the, like, I don't, I don't know why I just did. I just felt like, anything like I just felt nothing would happen to him because as long as 
I was okay and willing him to be okay, that he would be okay. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> that is not like, I'm not just saying like, just have some magical thinking and your baby will be fine. But I just assumed that, you know, and I had to, I went back to work really early on. We took our first flight when he was five weeks old because I was working in, I had to go to Tasmania to work. I, he was constantly being passed around to other people and I just had to be okay with that. And so the fact that I like, I couldn't, the fact that I couldn't rely on the one person who, he should have been the first person to be passed to, to quote unquote, help me was enraging to me. And I got to the point where I was just like, I'm not going to live like this. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of privilege, a lot of privilege that most women, I think in those situations don't have, which is where the society needs to change, which is where governments need to change to make it easier and not just make it easier, but to make it possible for women to divest child rearing from romantic partnerships you know that we should live if if it is largely women it's not only women who have babies but if it's largely women who are repopulating the earth whether or not you think that repopulation is good or not we're ha not mm -hmm. having that discussion i know climate change is part of this festival we're not having that discussion right now <laughs> if you if the if the government the government is like well we need new taxpayers every year we need new taxpayers to be being born and so why is government policy not then saying hmm it's mostly women who have those taxpayers. Why don't we make it easy for them? Why don't we make it financially possible? Because it might give possible? them power, Clementine. Exactly. And this is, this is where patriarchy, you know, traps women, is that it teaches us that the only way that we can have – if we have a desire to have a child, again, not all women have that desire, but for those of us who do, I did. Mm -hmm. If we have a desire to have a child, we are – conditioned from such an early age in order to ensnare us in the marriage trap we're conditioned to believe that the only way possible for that to happen is to fall in love and to find someone to give us a baby as opposed to framing it as well this is a biological urge for some people this is a biological possibility for a lot of people and this can be something that is just part of the human experience that is separate to people's emotional needs and separate to people's romantic needs if we lived in a world if, and in Australia, I think Victoria is actually, like, the, the government is not the best. I'm not going to say, like, oh, government's so progressive. But it, it's certainly a government that I think wants to appear to be doing a progressive <laughs> things a lot of the time. And if you could somehow, like, manipulate them into saying, well, this would look pretty good, wouldn't it? This would be, like, pretty world-leading. You, you could probably, like, inspire a few governments around the world with this stuff if you actually said like we would we would make it financially possible for for single women to have children to have access to housing like if you made it easier for women to leave relationships that are not servicing them whether or not they are abusive or not that's usually where the conversation is fixated but if you could just say to women if you're just not happy like we will make it possible for you to leave this unhappy relationship and we will make it possible for you to get housing. We will not live in a state or in a, in a society in which women are being forced to choose between poverty mm -hmm. or washing some man's skid-marked undies for the rest of his life. Then, then that would actually be revolutionary. Yeah, I would like to live in that world. We're nearly out of time, but I just want to ask you this one question that I heard Will Anderson ask Judith Lucy weirdly. Um, he said, and I think it's a, a common, you know, a almost a truism kind of question, like if you could do something and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? And I guess I'm thinking about your career. Oh, right. Oh, that's a good question. If I could do something and knew it wouldn't fail. Um, oh, well, I, well actually... That's what I would do is I would, if I could have, if I had an endless support, support, uh, supply of money, what I would love to do is to create comp, like communal, not necessarily communes, but communal style living, you know, buy up blocks of flats around the city. If I had, if I had like. Hmm. It's not going to you know, fail, so do no what question. you like. Yeah. Buy, buy up blocks of flats, you know, um, create spaces where women could live in those situations where women could have children whether or not they left relationships or they could have children off their own steam and they could say I'm going to be a person in the world that like has a job if I want that um I'm going to be a mum and I'm going to have a romantic life on my own terms I'm going to have mm -hmm. one that is completely separate from from obligation and responsibility because I feel like and I think that you can relate 
that who you are able to be once you've ended that, you know, the sort of the ways in which all of those things get enmeshed. So within a, in a, within a domestic cohabitation for a lot of us, you end up losing who you are and you wake up one day and you're like, I'm, it's going to be like this for the rest of my life or I'm going to wake up at 50, 60, 75 years old always having said, well, tomorrow I might make a choice. Tomorrow I might choose to leave. And then all of a sudden you're 75 and you look back and go, I didn't, I didn't do it, you know. Like I just did the right thing or I stayed with him for the kids or I stayed with him because I didn't have the fucking money to go mm. and this is my life now. And there's no prize at the end of life for who suffered the most or who like sucked it up the most. So so that's what I would do if I could assure if I could be assured that something wouldn't fail. I would I would make it possible for women to live the same kind of life that I've been able to live because of the privileges that I have. I think we should clap to that. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Alice Robinson, for asking such beautiful, generous questions. I feel like that flew by. I don't know if we were meant to have question time, but we're doing book signings and stuff like that. So if you do want to say anything, then... Uh, and thank you to the Fitzroy Library and to Yarra Council as well for um, hosting one of the first of hopefully many more events. That was Clementine Ford talking to Alice Robinson as part of the Fitzroy Writers' Festival. Boys Will Be Boys, Fight Like a Girl, Anchor Point and The Glad Shout are available to buy now at all good bookstores and available to borrow at Yarra Libraries. Thanks again to the Ewing Trust, a fund that allows special and unique programming at Fitzroy Library and promotes libraries, literature and a lifelong love of learning in Fitzroy. Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust are proud to support the Libraries Change Lives initiative, which highlights how Victorian public libraries change lives by offering communities a place to learn, create and belong. Please like, share and subscribe to the Yarra Libraries podcast. Thank you to the Ewing Trust for making this podcast possible.